Many of you have probably, at least if you've grown up in America, have grown up believing in a jolly old man named who? Yes, Santa Claus. Not Chris Christie, Santa... No, sorry, that was bad. Santa Claus. Now, I always wondered why families teach their kids about Santa Claus because there always comes the day when you find out that Santa Claus is not real. Yes, exactly. And that's the reaction you, you typically get. Shh. A little before this message, I was just kind of, just because I was curious, I went on YouTube and I searched videos of parents, siblings, destroying the childhood of some young children by telling them that there was no Santa Claus. I saw videos of these kids grabbing ankles and being dragged throughout the house. I saw this one video where this, this like evil sister feels like it's her duty to reveal the truth to this young little boy. And he's like, he thinks she's joking, starts tearing apart the camera, starts beating things up, you know. It's a, it's, a, it's a terrible place to be when you find out that Santa Claus isn't real. And, you know, Christians aren't any exempt from this. I'm, I'm sure that many of you had at one point in time believed in Santa Claus. I never did. My parents didn't teach me about Santa Claus until I was about 15. And because they're like, well, we're Christians. We don't believe in Santa. And then when we're 15, they're like, so guess you brought you presents. And I'm like, I, I know Santa's not real. They're like, well, you never know. So I'm pretty sure by now I know that Santa's not real. Well, what's the, the problem with this, I, I believe, is that oftentimes when we're, we're taught something at a young age and we find out it's not true, we begin to view certain things that may be true, that are true, in the same light. And so maybe, just as you were told that Santa Claus isn't real, you begin to look at the story of Jesus in the manger, the Virgin Mary, all that stuff, and you say, that's a bunch of hogwash, because I know that my parents have lied to me at least one point in time in my life. How do I know that they're not lying about this story as well? Well, either way, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, a lot of people often look at religion in terms of utility, in terms of usefulness. So they ask questions like, what is religion for? What is a God for? Well, they would say that, well, whatever makes you happy, you should do that. We went evangelizing last night at a mall, a local mall, and people said to me, like, oh, I'm so glad that that makes you happy, that Jesus makes you happy and you believe in those things. Because you see, that's why we teach our kids about Santa Claus. It's because we want them to be filled with wonder, filled with excitement. It's a useful way to get people excited. And then some point uh, along the line, we have to tell them the truth about the matter. But a lot of people go to church who could care less about God, but they go to church. They go to, whether it's a Catholic church and they have the midnight mass or they come to a church like this. And they do it because they feel like they ought to because it makes them feel better and it does something magical for them. Well, there might be a person here, maybe a person that you know, that says something like, well, religion doesn't do anything for me. You know, God doesn't really help me. The concept of a deity, concept of a God doesn't really do anything for me. So that's why I don't believe in God. But you see, that's kind of like saying, 
gravity doesn't really do anything for me, so I don't believe in gravity. You know, I used to believe that there was a force of the universe that held me down to the ground, but it doesn't really do anything useful for me, so I'm going to just toss it out. Well, that's what we call in philosophy a category mistake. You're asking a question that cannot be answered because you're asking the wrong question to a different criteria that doesn't need to ask that question. It's like saying, what does the number seven smell like? Well, you know, the number seven doesn't smell like anything because that's not a question that's asked of numbers. So questions of purpose apply to things that have been created for a purpose. If I've already lost you, that's okay, because I'm going to go slower. Don't worry. Here's the thing. Questions of purpose, in other words, what is God for? What is religion for? All those things are questions you ask of things that are created for a purpose. So oftentimes, people in our world will ask questions about God. Like, I don't, well, if God works for you, that's great. If Santa Claus works for you, that's great. Believe in what you want to believe. And they're asking, how can I use religion in my life to make me feel better? How can I use yoga, meditation, all these things that can help me get through life? And they're not asking the real question, which is, what is my life for? Instead of asking, what is God for? What does religion do for me? What am I supposed to do while I'm here on this earth? Because you see, you were created. You were made, however many years you've been alive, God formed you in the womb. And the Bible teaches us that many, many, many years ago that he spoke the world and everything in it into existence. Whether you believe in that or not is not a question of utility. It's a question of truth. And oftentimes people want to exchange truth for a lie. They would rather do what's useful for them than rather uh, the thing that is true. So they would rather be high. They would rather drink even if they know the truth is they're going to end up just like their close relative who's a drunkard, who's high, who's in jail. Even if they know the truth is the end of those things, as the Bible says, is destruction. They would rather live that lie because in the moment it makes them feel useful. But you see, I don't believe and I know that you, every single person here, no matter what your background is, no matter who you are, you were created for a purpose. In fact, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2.10 that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Oftentimes people think that faith is for people who have a hard time coping with life. But although faith may be personal, in other words, although your faith may differ from person to person, you may believe in in the God of uh, Muhammad, Allah, you may believe uh, there is no God in Buddhism. Your faith can be personal, but truth is universal. So there must be an answer to the question, is there a heaven? There must be a question, uh, there must be an answer to the question, is there a hell? You may have a different belief about it, but the fact of the matter is, you can choose not to believe in gravity, but gravity is going to hold you down. You may have a really firm belief that you can jump up and you just float into the sky. But I have news for you. The truth of the matter is you will be held down. In the same way, every one of us here will die at some point. You can't escape it. It's an incurable disease that every single person has. And no matter how long we try to prolong our lives, and many scientists are trying to figure out 
how to get the elixir of life, how to, how to make sure that they can live forever, we will never be able to keep our souls from departing our bodies. Our souls are not material things, and no matter what medicine you take in materially, it can't keep your spirit from leaving your body. So these questions must have answers. Now maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, listen, maybe it has an answer, but I don't think anyone can know the answer. I don't think anyone can know the answer to whether or not Jesus really was God. I don't know if anyone can ever figure that. I mean, think about all the religions out there. Think of all the different belief systems. How do you know that you're right? I just don't think we can know. Well, the person who says that we can never know claims to know something. Namely, that you can't know. What, what, give, what gives you the right to tell me I can't know something? That you searched every bit of evidence in the world and you can tell me we simply can't know that God exists. How can you know that? That person claims to know something about something that I can't know. But what if I agreed with you and said we can't know if God exists unless God himself spoke to us. Unless God himself revealed himself to us. Oftentimes when I'm talking to my friends about God, they'll say, I just, I, you know, I don't see any evidence of God. So I, I don't believe in him. But then I ask him, what if God spoke to you personally? Would that be grounds to believe in God? Of course, yeah. Sure, that would be great evidence. Well, what if he wrote a book and he put his signature on it, meaning he told the end from the beginning, he gave prophecies in there, so you could tell it's really him because no one else can tell the future. You may go to the psychic, but the psychic can only analyze your conscience. The psychic can only find out things about you just by cold reading, by looking at you and assuming certain things. They can't tell you what will happen in detail. And that's exactly what we find in the Bible. It's God's fingerprint saying, this is my word and I want you to get to know me. You see, if God never wrote the Bible, I would agree that we can never know God because how can we know something so vast, so unlike us? But if God chose to reveal himself to you and me, you better believe that we can understand him because he expects us to. In fact, he created us for the purpose that we would discover him, we would find our purpose in him. Well, what we see here in Luke chapter 2 is the fulfillment of a prophecy spoken of in the Old Testament, which is the Jewish Bible, which we have in the Bibles that we've given you today. There is a prophecy that goes way back when through the prophets Isaiah, through the prophet Malachi, all these different prophets that are telling you of this one day when the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come in and become like us to save the world. Well, you see here in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Listen, this is historical. This is made up. Right here, you have details, facts that you can very easily go into history and figure out if this actually happened. Now, just because it's historical doesn't mean that Jesus is God. I agree with you there. But let's continue on and see what happens in verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. In other words, it was time for her to have a baby. And she brought forth her first 
firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Here's what's really interesting about this. You have, in this time, you have this guy, Caesar, who was in control of Rome, and he exercises power in such a way that was unseen in the world uh, ever before. This guy, Caesar, called for a census of all people so that all the people of the world could be taxed and it could boost the economy and whatever. But he exercised some enormous power. This guy came out of nowhere when Rome was doing really, really bad. All kinds of evil, all kinds of destruction was going on. The economy was poor. He brought in some gold from Egypt and he brought some, some uh, things to boost the economy. He was the political savior. And he gave himself the term Augustus, which means exalted one. So this guy Caesar said, I'm not just going to be a political person. I'm going to be an exalted a deity, a person to be worshipped. So he saw himself as a person of enormous amounts of power, so much so that he could call everyone to this one place. But little did he know that in calling this census, this was really inconvenient and it was really uh, unlike anything that's ever really happened before. He was just a pawn in God's plan to bring Jesus into Bethlehem, which was a town prophesied in the Old Testament through which the Messiah would be born. Now, this is a long trek. And you guys know at this point, as it says right here in the Bible, that Mary was going to have a child. And listen, when you're pregnant, you're not supposed to be traveling a lot. I mean, when, especially when you're about to have a baby. And so Mary is traveling not just a little bit, 80 miles. 80 miles. That is not a very smart thing for a person who is about to have a baby to do. But she does it because it was needful that she be there in Bethlehem. I think also we should notice that right here in this passage, you have to also know that there was about 400 years as a gap between the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, and this book. 400 years where God did not say anything. Nothing happened. No prophet spoke. Nothing happened. You had the temple overthrown. You had Antiochus Epiphanes and the book of Maccabees. Historical crazy things. That's how Hanukkah came about. But God didn't speak any new revelation. Now imagine that for 400 years in our day, God did not speak anything. Oh wait, that seems to be the case for us too. Not that God hasn't spoken at one point, but it can be difficult to see how God exists when you have a large gap of time in which there are no miraculous things happening. And I think the Jewish people felt that way too. They felt abandoned. Where is God? Because I've been praying, I've been seeking, and nothing seems to be really happening. 400 years of silence. And now we are in a period of time where you see all kinds of terror, all kinds of craziness happening. I mean, you can't even go watch a movie anymore without another country threatening us with a 9-11 type attack that could happen in a theater if you watch a certain movie. It's beyond ridiculous. And we all have good reason if we don't have God. We have good reason to be afraid that we would walk into a building and we don't know if a terrorist is going to attack or like in Sydney last week. You go into a cafe, and this crazy guy just uh, holds up the entire cafe. And around 20 or 30 people are held up for 16 hours, and people die. We should have every reason to fear if there is no God, because man 
uh, is, is capable of doing all kinds of evil. However, if God exists and if he's really in control of the universe, then he is sovereign and no man is powerful enough to thwart his plans. That includes this prophecy. You see, although Caesar thought he was in control, God was in control. And he was, by his providence, bringing Mary and Joseph to the very place where Jesus needed to be born. You may ask, where is God when life hurts? Where is God when that person has betrayed me, when I've been abused, when, when that person left me, when my parents deserted me? Where is God when life hurts? But you have to understand that God is working all things together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. No part of the universe is without purpose. No molecule, no atom. Everything is ordained in such a way that's permitting life. And in the same way, every part of your life is organized, is, is watched by God and orchestrated in such a way that you would, you would find him and you would know that he is watching your every step and that you would be directed to him. The fact that you are here in this room tonight isn't a coincidence. It's a sign that God wants to speak to you. Whether you believe in him or not, maybe you've been backsliding for a while. Maybe you just feel like it's been dry and you haven't been hearing from the Lord. You need to know tonight that God has brought you to this place, even if it's inconvenient. You're like, I don't even know why I'm here right now. Well, you know what? It's the Holy Spirit. I'm sure that when Mary and Joseph traveled all that way, when that census was happening, there might have been a person on the opposite side of town thinking, why is God allowing this terrible thing to happen? Is it because he wants me to witness to someone on the way? Is it because he's orchestrating? We, we might not ever be able to figure out why God does some things, but we can know that God is working the things together for his good. You need to know something. That no matter how messy life gets, no matter how evil some people are, that doesn't mean that the whole thing is ruined. It means that right now it's ruined, but one day there will be redemption. If you took a bunch of puzzle pieces and you took them out of the box and you dumped it on the floor, you wouldn't just say, this is complete nonsense. I don't know, I don't even know why I bought this puzzle. It's just ridiculous. No one can ever solve this puzzle, even if it's difficult. In fact, the mess that we make points to an ideal order. You see a bunch of shapes, you see a bunch of parts that you don't even know where this one fits. You try to jam it in and you're just like, I don't even know if this is part of the same puzzle. But you know that there's an ideal picture that it's supposed to match. Pain and suffering in this world, I think, is an indicator that it was never meant to be this way. No matter how difficult your life is, no matter how, how much evil pervades in your life, it's a sign that it was never meant to be this way. But oftentimes what we do is we blame God rather than blaming sin. Well, if God's in control, why doesn't he keep me from this evil? Well, listen, one day he will put an end to evil and every wrong that's ever been committed against you and every wrong that you've done will be judged. The question is, can you say that you've been, whole, uh, you've been holy and perfect before a holy and perfect God? But why did God send God, uh, why did God send Jesus into the world in the first place? Why was the Father sending Jesus into the world? Well, we find that in Isaiah chapter 9. If you want to flip there real quick, if you have your Bibles, it's just a couple books back to the left. Isaiah chapter 9, I told you there's going to be prophecy. And listen, you can go on Wikipedia right now. You can check out what the date of Isaiah was when it was written. 
everyone knows it was written at least, even if you're skeptical about the dates, everyone knows it's before the time of Jesus. I mean, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are dated way before Jesus was born, and it has the book of Isaiah in it. All right, so here it goes. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The throne of David, obviously, we know that Joseph is from the lineage of David, and that's how that came about. But unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You hear that quoted all throughout Christmas, but think about what that means. His name will be called Wonderful. In other words, hard to figure out. Beyond our understanding, sometimes you may not figure out some things, but you need to know that there are some things that God does want you to know, and that is written in his word. There is good news for every single person here, and that is that Jesus came to get rid of all sin and to get rid of all death. Romans 5, 6 says that for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God is sovereign over authority. He's sovereign over coincidence. He's sovereign over your situation. Look, if you look at that passage here in Luke, here you have Mary traveling all this way, 80 miles, just for this baby to be born during this census. And as they were looking for a place to stay, you would, you would suspect that the God of the universe would be born in a palace. But he was born in a manger. Because there is no room in the inn. John chapter 1 verse 11 says, He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Can't imagine what it must be like for Mary, with all the ridicule she's going through, being this 15-year-old girl who's pregnant, and telling people that she's pregnant with the Holy Spirit, and people are like, really? Like, you're really going to pull that one on us? And she's going around in shame and embarrassment, trying to find a place for her baby to be born. And can't find anywhere. No room, nowhere. Can I imagine that's going to be the most frustrating thing in the world? Not only to, to feel so alone because of the ridicule, but to feel so alone because you don't even have strangers who are supposed to let you in to their inn, let you in that night. But in the same way, oftentimes we do that too. Many people don't want to let Jesus into their lives. They have no need of him, no use for him. No, we don't need a Savior. I, I'm fine on my own. But you see, not everyone wants a Savior, but everyone needs a Savior. If you went to the doctor, and he had all his tools out, some sharp things, some scissors, some lasers, all kinds of crazy stuff, and he says, I'm going to use these on you right now. I'm going to strap you down, put you under uh, some anesthesia, and we're going to get to work. You would say, you're crazy. I'm going to sue you. Why? Because you don't think anything's wrong with you. However, if you were told that you had cancer and you were going to die in a matter of months, you would be all in for this guy getting out that cancer as soon as possible. Why? What's the difference? You recognize that there is a problem that needs to be addressed. And you don't care how drastic it is. You're saying, man, I need help. In the same way, every man has to come to the end of themselves, as it's often said, to, be, to come to the beginning of God. 
Every person has to recognize that they cannot solve their problems on their own in order to find Jesus to be their savior. It's almost offensive if you say you need saving and the person thinks they're fine. It's offensive to tell a person who's swimming in an ocean, hey, you need saving? Let me go and save you. Like, I'm swimming fine. You're going to look ridiculous. But if the person doesn't know that they're being sucked under a riptide, they need a savior right away. They need someone to come in and rescue them. And in the same way, many of us are on a destination towards hell because we are trusting in ourselves and not trusting in God to forgive us of our sins. But I'm a good person, you say. No, you're not. None of us are good. We've all done wrong things, even by your own standards, because we've all had guilt. If you've ever had guilt in your life, you recognize one thing, which is that you've been wrong at least once. And the Bible tells us that all of our wrongs are bad. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. They're worthless. Because we say, hey, here's my righteousness, but it's like a little kid saying, I've been good today, so give me a cookie to its parent. Like, I'm, I ain't giving you a cookie. I, I know you just ate five when I wasn't looking. We all want to be justified in our own eyes, but before a holy and righteous and perfect God, we fall short. But why doesn't God let me into heaven and kick out people like Hitler and bad people and, and just send them to hell? Why does he have to send me if I don't accept him? Well, we don't recognize oftentimes how bad our sin is. Just bear with me for a moment. If we took every imperfect person, like basically good people like you and me, we sent them to heaven, what would heaven be like? Just like earth. A bunch of basically good people that sometimes hurt each other and sometimes cause wars when they're not fair and I guess sometimes backstab each other and lie. Oh, wait, because I do that too. I've fought people. I've yelled at people. I've, I've done terrible things to people in my life. I need a savior. If Christianity is a crutch, I'm more than willing to take the crutch because I recognize that I cannot be a good person on my own. I cannot get to heaven on my own. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The fact is, sin takes a good thing that God's given us and makes it everything. Sin takes a good thing. God gives us good things. gives you clothes, talents, abilities. And sin says, you need to make that everything. It's not that you're beautiful. Your beauty has to define you. It's not that you're uh, successful. Your success has to define you. Your fame has to define you. Everyone wants to make themselves something. Because remember what we said in the beginning. Everyone is searching for a purpose. Because that's why humans were made. They were made for a purpose. And the purpose is to find God, their creator. Until you find God... Everything else will never satisfy you. They weren't meant to. The good things you have were meant to point as an arrow to God, the, the good giver of all those good things. But unless you find God, you'll never know your true purpose. Now listen, you may look at famous people and say, well, they look like they got it all together. No, they don't. Even Jim Carrey, the successful actor, says, I wish everyone would get rich and famous in everything they ever dreamed of so that they would know it's not the answer. It doesn't matter how much riches you have. It doesn't matter how much opportunity you have. Everyone's searching for something greater than themselves. Even Taylor Swift in her latest album says in that New York City song, everybody here wanted something more, searching for a sound we hadn't heard before. Why do people come to New York City? The city of opportunity. Why do you go to Los Angeles? You want to make it in acting. Even if you're an actor, you're successful, you want to find the next biggest thing. You're living for the moment. You're saying, yeah, I'll, I'll give myself to God the minute I'm about to die. I'll say, yeah, God, I just want to go to heaven. But listen, you're wasting your life. If you're living for a moment, 
Each and every moment that you're living for is going to be wasted unless you find purpose in each and every moment. Living for the moment simply means that you don't believe any particular moment is worth living for. Living for the moment means that you're living a life without purpose because you believe there's no particular moment that's worth living for. Whereas athletes, they train all for one moment, all for one race, for one run, for one swim. They train their all, entire lives saying, I believe there's at least one moment worth living for, and I'm going to live in light of that moment. But a person who treats every moment the same is going to live each moment equally meaningless. Do you realize that's what people do today? I want to go to church. I want to go party with my friends. For what? You're gonna, what are you going to remember? You're going to remember five years that you were at a party with your friends? You're, you're going to remember five years from now that the Holy Spirit spoke to your heart and gave you direction on your life. What's of more value? Going to that party, drinking that next drink, smoking weed with your friends. Listen, I find it hard to believe that there's anyone in this planet that says my purpose on life is to smoke weed because that gives me fulfillment in life. These things are transit, transitory. They're uh, transient, rather. These things are temporary, and they will fade away as all flesh is as grass, and the flower of man is, is the same. But the word of the Lord endures forever. But we see here in the Bible that God reveals himself to those that are willing to come to him. Look at verse 8, and we're going to close with this. It says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the, of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, goodwill, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Why did God reveal himself to shepherds? And in fact, what we know from history is that these shepherds were not trustable at all. These shepherds were unreliable. And if you brought them to court, they'd be thrown out of court because their testimony wasn't reliable. These were uneducated. These were people that the society would say don't really matter in the long run. Why wouldn't God appear to the kings of the universe? Why wouldn't God appear to the people of high esteem? If you had, you know, um, if you had, what's his name, Prince whatever, who just came from England and visited with his wife. Help me out here. Prince William, probably William, I don't know. You have him, and you, let's say that he's going to go visit a farmer in New Jersey. What's wrong with that picture? Well, he's the prince. He should go with royalty. He should go with famous. He should hang out with Jay-Z and Kim Kardashian and whoever else, right? But you see, this is what Jesus did. He revealed himself to the lowly. And listen, this is what you need to know tonight. Everyone, everyone look up here. If you are thinking, I will never be able to find God, I will never be able to reach God, you are in fact the person that he's willing to reveal himself to. You don't need to be successful. You don't need to be famous. You don't have to have it all together. You just have to be willing to come to him and that all that are willing to come to him, he'll by no means cast out, the Bible says, and he will raise you up until the last day. 
he'll make sure that you receive the Father. You can know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus said, I didn't come to those that are healthy. I came to those who are sick. The sick people are the people that need a doctor. Sometimes God might, God might show up in your life when you least expect it. You may be like Paul. The apostle who rode on the donkey on the way to Damascus. And on that road he was traveling. And Jesus Christ met him there. You may be like Jacob in the book of Genesis chapter 28. And he was lying down. And then you have that whole vision of Jacob's ladder. And he says, surely God was in this place and I didn't even know it. Could it be that tonight God is in this place and you didn't even know it? Could it be that amongst all the fun and the games that we're going to have in a little bit. There is a message that you need to hear, and it's that it doesn't matter how far you run from God, He is always devising ways to bring you back to Himself. You see, God is madly in love with you. He is madly in love with you. He's not willing that any should perish, any person should die, but that all would come to repentance. All it takes is the heart that says, Lord, I cannot do this on my own. Would you please help me? All it takes is the person that says, Lord, I want you to be the Lord of my life because I can't control things around me. I don't have the power to get through life. I don't have the strength to succeed. And Lord, I want you to be my success. I want you to be my reward. Listen, Santa isn't real. We talked about that already. No jolly man is going to sneak down your chimney at night and steal your cookies. But we have something better. Jesus Christ said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. Listen, Santa, Santa might try to be a creepy old man that sneaks down your chimney. Jesus Christ is a gentleman who knocks on your door. He's not going to steal your cookies. He's going to eat a meal with you. Religion is dead. Relationship is Jesus Christ. You don't need to come here because you have to. You come here because you want to know him more. That's what this place is. Every Friday night we come here not because we have to, but because we simply want to dine with Jesus Christ. To know him more, to know his fellowship, to know our purpose, to know how to get through this life, to know how to deal with anxiety when tests are bad, when people hurt us, when people fail us. We don't come here for people, for friends. All those things are great, but when people and friends fail us, we have Jesus Christ. And that's all we need. He is our all in all. But if God is knocking on your heart tonight, would you answer? We know that God exists. That's a fact that you can prove. But the question is, will you choose him? It's a gift that you have to be willing to receive. Would you bow your heads with me as we close?